sermon text today is Ephesians, sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father God, I'm thankful for this church family. Um, you have given me and my family uh, such comfort being amongst this body. And we love this church family. And Father, in this time together, would you Be glorified through the preaching of your word. Keep me and my thoughts from getting in the way of you speaking clearly to us this morning. I pray that this word, that this this message this morning would reverberate for, for years, Father. Use it, God, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, I was a part of a generation that idolized Michael Jordan. For some time, I had a poster of a guy on my wall in my bedroom. Uh, His name was Dominique Wilkins. I went to school. He was a basketball player in the NBA, played with Michael Jordan. And I went to school and I told all my friends uh, that Dominique Wilkins was better than Michael Jordan. So I, uh, I'm glad we didn't have Facebook or Twitter at that time because that would not have aged well. Uh, but we, we idolized MJ. Um, so matter of fact, if I would have tweeted that, I probably would have lost my job if I tweeted uh, that Dominique Wilkins was better than Michael Jordan. Uh, there was even a commercial back in the day, if you remember the commercial, If I Can Be Like Mike. You remember that? If those of you, yeah, so I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to ruin everything that's going on up here. Uh, so, and, and what's going to happen. Uh, so, yeah, if I could be like Mike. And it's all these kids and they're trying to mimic and they're trying to do everything that Michael Jordan was doing. And, uh, and so the, the, the jingle went, if I could be like Mike, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. The whole, so, and everybody loved Michael Jordan. They wanted to be like MJ. You can see even players in the NBA today that have a similar game like Michael Jordan. This, this fascination went on for years. Uh, even after his retirement, people would check in on Michael Jordan. They would want to see what kind of house he had and what kind of, how many cars that he, he was driving. What kind of new line of basketball shoes or tennis shoes would he be offering? And people would replay his highlight videos. And fast forward to when he was inducted into the, the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. He invited his high school basketball coach which you thought that was a great gesture. But he invited his high school basketball coach to his speech so that he could humiliate him in front of everybody because his high school basketball coach cut him when I think it was in the ninth grade. That was a chink in the armor for me when that happened. I I thought, well, something's, I I don't think I understood Michael Jordan right. I thought, "That's, that's not cool. But if you were to peel back the layers of MJ, you started to see that his relationships with people weren't great. And he came across as not someone that I'd want to be like, but someone that I actually kind of pity. I mean, yes, he's got a lot of money. He had fame. He was potentially, probably the greatest basketball player to ever play. But you know what? I don't want to be like Mike. And MJ could fit right into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And and I would say he would probably read Ecclesiastes 4. He'd probably read Ecclesiastes and say, I agree 100%. That's that's me. See, the theme of the book, of this book we've been in, if you remember, is the dissatisfaction of life under the sun with all of life's joy and all of life's pain and suffering and successes and, and unpredictability. And the author walked us through his own experiences as someone who had everything he could have desired under the sun. Wisdom, pleasure, success like Michael Jordan. None of them, though, while enjoyable, ultimately satisfied him. And the aim of the writer is to drive us to consider deeply the realities of life, to prepare us for the darker seasons, the winter seasons of life. And yet also help us prepare for how to to navigate through all of it. He wants us to drive to consideration of actually the spiritual life above the sun. And so far in chapters 1 through 3, The authors pointed out that life is awfully 
indefinable, yet profoundly enjoyable. It's a call so far. It's been a call to to joy in this world, but a joy that thinks. He points out that the pain of life can actually lead us to rightly understand the world, our own limitations in this world, our humanity, and then God's sovereign control over all things. He's shown us that life is more to be enjoyed than it is to be understood. Why? Because we're told that God is in control and we can trust Him. For all affairs of life, God has an appointed time, we saw in chapter 3. The point in history, the length and character and significance of all things is subject to the oversight of divine providence. We're also told in chapter 3 that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all men and women, yet so that He cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. He told us in Ecclesiastes 3, I've wired you to wonder about eternal things, and yet you won't be able to figure it out. What you can know, however, is that whatever God does is forever. And if we know that, then we will humbly trust Him. Yet in this life where we are exhorted to humbly trust the Lord, it's not all that easy. What we're watching with our eyes just throughout this life seems to violate the thesis that, that God has a divine plan, that He providentially directs all affairs. Everything happening on this earth is under His divine control. And so much of what we see and experience in life seems to contradict that God has a purpose and that it's all beautiful in its time. And today in chapter 4, we're going to look at a dark world. And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to give us some invaluable advice on how to navigate through what is a dark, dark world. One that has been broken by sin and the curse of sin. So he's not going to let us look away from the dark world. He's going to help us stare it in the face and come to terms with what it really is so that we're not shaken by it and we know how to navigate through it. We're going to look at three realities in chapter 4. And then we're going to talk about how to navigate through these as I believe the chapter essentially gives us a key to all of life as confounding and troubling and even at times beautiful as life is. So he wants us to come to terms with the world as it really is. So there are three realities we see in Ecclesiastes 4. And the first one is found in verses 1 through 3. The impotence against oppression. The impotence against oppression. If you don't know what impotence means, basically helplessness. You could write helplessness against oppression. Verses 1 through 3 says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So he saw all of the oppression done under the sun. Can you imagine... All the oppression in this world, if you were to be able to see that, how that would ca- what that would what that would do to you. But when he's looking at it, what is it that strikes him? He mentions it twice. The tears of the oppressed. And he, he, he mentions that no one is there to comfort them. No one 
to comfort them. The first time it's emphatic with an exclamation point. And it being repeated again lets us know that the striking thing here is that there was no one bringing comfort to those who were weeping. There was no justice, as the preacher mentioned in chapter 3. No comfort. Oppression is the abuse of power. It could be financial, it could be physical, it could be social, and it's perpetrated on those who are not so powerful by the, uh, by the powerful. It's perpetrated on those who are vulnerable, the poor, the widows, orphans, aliens. It was often associated with violence in the Old Testament and with the denial of rights and justice. It's also accumulation, the seeking after profit without regard to the needs and the rights of other people. Do you want to know what a fun pick-me-up is at the end of a long, hard-working day? Go home and turn on the news. Now, I don't have to delineate all the stories and the events that you're likely to hear about. Drive-by shootings, mass shootings, senseless violence, being streamed live for the world to watch. Fentanyl being smuggled over the border, getting into the hands of our country's youth and killing them. Drug cartels trafficking children and women uh, and, and men across our borders and essentially owning them for life. Corrupt politicians, embezzlers, the celebration of aborting babies, rioting and destroying businesses, racial, uh, racial strife. These are all stories that come that are fairly close to home. And so you get tired of that and you decide to change the channel, right? And... Why don't we move on to the global news? And it doesn't take you long to realize that you're not going to be any more encouraged by what you are watching. It would be like preferring a sucker punch to the face over a sucker punch to the gut. You pick your poison. I'm guessing if I were to take a poll in here that the vast majority majority of you would say that I can't watch the news for too long. It's too depressing. And so you pick up the remote Again, and look for the Andy Griffith show, right? But the author of Ecclesiastes comes to you and says, no, 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 leave it here. And just watch it. You need to come to terms with what the world really is. And when you're done with this, we'll go on a a ride along with Child Protective Services. And you'll get an idea, a picture of what a dark, dark world we find ourselves in. It's such a depressing thought. I mean, have you ever thought maybe without even verbalizing it because you kind of get this feeling of guilt? Like, I don't know if I would want to bring my children into this world as if you had control over being able to do that. But I don't want to bring kids into this world. It's, it's such a wicked world. So much violence, so much darkness, so much sadness. I admit, I've, I've had thoughts like that at times. And I just thought it was just a terrible way to view things. I feel guilty about those kinds of thoughts. But doesn't it seem here that the preacher would say, I know what you mean? You're not crazy for wondering these things. <laughs> You'd be better off dead than to have to walk through this dark world. No, it would be better for... You to never be born into this dark world. Sin has wrecked this world. Can you relate? It just seems like things aren't getting any better. You're worried about the world that your kids are going to grow up up in. That's, That's real, isn't it? 
We've had this, Jessica and I have had this conversation about what kind of world our kids are going to grow up in. On this note, David Gibson says that the preacher in Ecclesiastes would respond to you like this. If you think you're living in a world where things are getting worse all the time, then cheer up. At least you'll be dead before things get really bad. We live in a dark world, don't we? And we must come to terms with the world as it really is. And believe me, we are meant to ask the question when we watch with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, why does injustice prevail? Why is no one doing anything about it? Why is no one comforting them? And before you think this is an excuse to do nothing in the face of oppression, because he really doesn't offer any answers here, does he? He just makes an observation. This is the way, this is how dark the world is. But the Bible doesn't let us off the hook. God had given his people very specific commands about how are they, they are to treat the poor and the vulnerable and, and the alien among them. The widows, the orphans. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So more on how we're gonna, we, we cope with this reality later, but for now, we're gonna move on. So, impotence against oppression is the first reality we see in Ecclesiastes 4. Admitting this reality will help us come to terms with the world as it really is. And we're given a second reality to stare at. And that's the emptiness of selfish gain. The emptiness of selfish gain. Verse 4 through 8. And I saw that all toil and all skill and, all, uh, and, and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to, his, to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he, he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Solomon here in verse 4 draws a conclusion. After watching how this dark world works, he says that this life is one giant rat race. It's a competition for food, for shelter, for work, for possessions, for honor, for control. This actually flies in the face of atheistic humanism. Given enough power, people will choose to do right. Right? But it doesn't take long to realize that the human ego and the human desire for power will run amok. That's why communism or socialism ultimately fails. Every human without the divine power of God is envious and will take advantage of situations and people. Every human exploits his fellow human being. Life without God is a dog-eat-dog life of competition and an experience of unsatisfied lust for more. More for me at any cost. And Paul in Romans 1 agrees. In verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is another reason why it's scary or can be scary to be raising kids in this world. Do you not feel this when you see your child being bullied at school or on the playground? You may be horrified if you actually see your own child doing this to another child. It's also something that you might see at the office or on television. Our culture can even celebrate and idolize those who are really good at doing that in sports. I remember seeing, uh, this was sometime in the early 2000s, one of the defensive linemen for the Texas Longhorns, and we, it, it is, we used to have some defensive linemen. Um, I think his name was Casey Hampton, Casey Hampton, who played with Vince Young, and I remember watching him. He just trucked a guy, just mowed him over, and he laid on him. And I thought it was the greatest thing. And then he got up, and I remember watching this, and I was like, what's he going to do? And he reaches down to help the guy up. And the guy, the poor boy, he was probably 18, he reaches up, and Casey Hampton goes, nope, nope, and he walked off. This is just pure, oh man, I loved it. It's not right, but I loved it. Um, just when you thought he had stolen the man's spirit from him he stands up reaches down offers it and then he actually really steals his spirit from him uh, i don't i don't know if uh, if you're i know of one who watches survivor in this room um, but i don't think anyone who watches that show would say that this isn't a large part of the plot line of that show I heard a comedian say sarcastically, I don't know why people hate Americans. We, we have a show about us sending a bunch of Americans to their third world countries and seeing if they can survive. And then whoever makes it to the end, we give them a whole bunch of money. And I thought, it's got a point. But if you watch it for long, you'll be agreeing with the sage of Ecclesiastes. There's always an angle. Notice that he gives two extremes of what selfish gain may look like. Verse 5, the lazy fool who folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Essentially, by being lazy, he ruins himself. That's what we're supposed to see there. And then verse 8, there's no end to his toil. In verse 8, there's, there's the person who there's, there's no end to his toil. Working and working. It's the opposite of being lazy. Working and working, yet never satisfied. We often think that life tomorrow is going to be better than life today because tomorrow we'll have achieved something great. We'll get the promotion that we always wanted. We'll we'll eventually get that degree that we've always wanted. Our our kids will get to be a certain age. And once they're that certain age, we'll be able to have grown-up conversations with them. When I get married, things are just going to finally, it's going to finally make sense. David Gibson says the preacher's point is that to live this way is like shooting yourself in one foot so that you can hop more quickly with the other. Why not stop and enjoy today in very real ways? Tomorrow's promotion will only bring more pressure. The higher degree will just teach you how little you know. The marriage will connect you to another sinner for life. 
It's true. The deadline will pass only to have another one come racing towards you. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that, yes, you are doing everything out of a desire for more and better stuff and greater success than your neighbor. Working to try to keep up with those around you and not only keep up with them, but surpass them. And that there are consequences for this. What's it like to join the rat race? We're told in verse 8, if you look at it, he has no other, either son or brother. He's lonely. One, one commentator said, people devote their lives to acquiring wealth, but they have no one to share it with. Money is their only kin. How else, what, what else is it like to join the rat race? Well, you're tired. You see, there's no end to his toil in verse 8. You're you're never satisfied. It says his eyes are never satisfied with riches. There is at times a certain sorrow in success. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12, verse 14. He says, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus was pointing it out to us because it's hard to recognize which actually leads us to the next characteristic. If you join the rat race, then you're, you, you actually are blinding yourself. This man can't even see his situation well enough to stop and ask the question, what am I even doing? Why am I even doing this? Who am I spending all of this energy for? Why am I so miserable? And Solomon is pointing out that the most important person to you is you. And the most important person to me is me. Have you ever found yourself there? I mean, maybe, maybe you're there now. Or perhaps you have a loved one who you would say, well, they'd be the poster child for this. Well, Solomon, Solomon would mostly likely, would most likely reply, no, 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 no. You, you are the poster child for this. You do this. We all do this. The person that you think about the most is you. And aside from a work of God in our hearts, we will all go the way of Romans chapter 1. We will all choose self over others. Every time. Unless Christ changes radically our hearts. No, no. Unless Christ gives us a new heart. We will be no better than this man. Every single time will go the way of self. And he says, this is vanity. It's an unhappy business. I only have to go so far back as yesterday when uh, college football was on and I was cheering for my Longhorns who um, had to kind of face the reality of the dark world that is Texas Longhorns football. My team... Lost to Texas Tech in what is becoming a predictable fashion every year. I was learning to deal with this loss yesterday afternoon, and truly, I was going to be okay. All right, I was going to be fine. I had a sermon to prep for, all that kind of stuff. But then I saw the score of the OU-Kansas State game. And that's when I saw the score come up, and I got this warm, fuzzy feeling. OU was getting beat. 
And I really thought, maybe I won't be the only person who will be miserable today. Victor Hugo writes a poem in which envy and greed are each granted the opportunity to receive whatever they wish on the condition that the other one would receive a double portion of that wish. So envy says, I wish to be blind in one eye. The envious person resents another person's good gifts. So dragging others down and taking away from them all that they have can make us feel better about ourselves. You see, there is a problem with me. It's me. The problem is me. And David Gibson points out the thing about the unique thing about the Bible when it comes to oppression. He says it's not hard for relief organizations to eloquently explain the damage that the powerful elite can inflict on the weak. But the Bible is just as concerned with the damage done to the oppressor in their acts of oppression. Verse four says, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is vanity and unhappy business. Solomon, see, he's he's here acknowledging the subtlety of envy. The preacher here is probing deep inside our hearts. All this striving, all of this toiling, all this working and working and working. It's all motivated by me. The desire for the focus to be on me or to be liked or I don't know, everything that uh, that we want to be, we want it to be about us. David Gibson points out that if you were just to take take note of of every time, every time that you stop to think about what is it you're thinking about and you you were to look at that, if you were to kind of replay throughout the day your thoughts, the main thought that would come up in your mind would be, how am I doing? What what do I need now? How, How am I doing? What? How can I become more comfortable? How can I get out of this uncomfortable situation? It's all sorts of these. It's just about me. The desire to be the focus of attention or to be liked is capable of driving all that we do and the reason we do it. Okay, we have to move on. So that brings us to the third reality that we're meant to see in Ecclesiastes 4, and that is the impermanence of fame. The impermanence of fame. In verses 13 through 16, it says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely... This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I won't spend a whole lot of time here. One of the main reasons is because there are all sorts of different interpretations about what this actually means. There are a lot of nuances in the Hebrew text that make it hard to know who the he is in verse 14. But in the, ca- the context of this chapter, I think it makes the most sense to say that even if you were to reach the pinnacle of human success, if you were to reach the pinnacle of human success as a king, You have everything. It still won't satisfy you. And you'll soon be forgotten. And the kid, I think verse 14 is referring for he, the the child. I think that's referring to a child coming behind this king who is old and foolish, who didn't know how to take advice. The kid coming behind him that everyone thought was going to be the next best hope for them. They're all going to forget him, too. 
Fame is fleeting. The writer of Ecclesiastes confesses that pursuing wealth, pleasure, and fame, ultimately realizing that each in turn is transient and thus insufficient to secure eternal happiness for anybody. If you ever watch the movie The Greatest Showman, Jenny Lind sang a song that powerfully echoes this realization. The words go, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars to steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough for me. Never. Now, one could argue that if you saw that movie, that the song actually starts off with her saying she needs the companionship of somebody else to make it everything be okay. There's so much irony in the entire scene if you've watched it and I don't have time to hash it out here. But the point is made pursuing wealth, pleasure and fame. Though they may be enjoyable for a while, they will not secure eternal happiness. Hollywood knows this. They feel it. They've actually they make movies about this. It's a a, it's a it's a it's a part of a dark world that we live in, that this is real life. As a matter of fact, some of the most bittersweet movies They actually depict hurting characters who pursue good things, but when they attain those things, they remain unfulfilled. And it's just kind of a downer of a movie. What a sad movie it would be if someone made a movie called Ecclesiastes. Think about that. It's like here the author is pointing out that there are much better things in life than success and wealth. It leads us to the last thing I want to point out from the text this morning. You see, in the middle of these passages, we're implicitly given a better way to navigate in the face of these realities in life. If you look at verses 9 through 12, it's a, it's a navigation map, so to speak, for how to wisely walk through this dark world full of oppression, vanity, and fleeting fame together. What's better than living life for yourself? Because we've seen it's an unhappy business. Spending your life on behalf of others. So this is the last how to wisely walk through this dark world together. Look at the text with me again. Verse nine. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I remember this passage of Scripture even standing out to me when I was in junior high and high school and I was going through and just, just life as a teenager and I, I really, this stuck out to me. Like, I just need people in my life. I can't do this on my own. I can't fight sin on my own. I need, I need help. David Gibson says this is actually the way to happiness. The way to happiness is to not live and work for yourself. He uses this phrase, I like it. Live for we, not me. See, the ramifications of this are huge. David Gibson goes on to say, he says, we've seen that it's possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. 
If the love of money is the root of all evil, then Ecclesiastes, and indeed the whole Bible, has a beautifully simple solution. Here is how you sever that root, stop the rot, and kill the evil. Spend your money on others. Give it away. Do it regularly, gladly, generously, and you will be happy. That word happy is actually in verse 6. There's a word quietness in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. That quietness is really like a, a peaceful happiness that one can have. The good stuff in life is not what you own or how much money you make or how popular you can become or how famous you can become. It's whom you relate to. It's not what you spend your money on. It's what you give. I heard someone say to me one time, I've heard it a few times, normally they're kind of good old boys and they'll say, they'll ask the question, how are we doing? I thought it was an interesting way to ask the question, how are you doing? But it gave a different tone. It's, it's not just about, it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. It's about we. When you're asking, how are we doing? The question implies that you and I are not alone in this thing. How are we doing? It means you don't have to be in this alone. You don't have to walk through this very dark world alone. Even if you aren't doing well. Or maybe you're in the heights of success. It's better that you, you not be in that all alone. So I liked it. I liked it. And so maybe you've heard me say, how are we doing? How are we doing? I, I like it. From time to time, I'll ask that question with friends or customers, uh, with my job. How are we doing? The author of Ecclesiastes would say that it's the key to satisfaction in life. We, not me. And I don't know if that person who asked me that question the first time was familiar with Ecclesiastes, but it, it resonated with me and possibly it would have resonated with Solomon as well. And you can see that there are advantages to me, not, uh, we, not me, the, the community. Verse 9, there's a better profit, a good return for one's labor. Verse 10, there's help in time of difficulty. Verse 11, there's comfort in time of need. There's someone to bring comfort. Verse 12, there's protection in time of danger. Notice that believers are not charged to fold their arms and say, well, that's just the way that it is. I can't do anything about it, this dark world. Think of even the opportunities that we have before us as a church. Think about D groups, discipleship groups, groups that you have together. Home fellowships, families count. Think about families count. Can we image our God and offer help in times of need? Can we give our lives away, our inconveniences we put aside? Can we, can we just sacrifice those things? For the, for the good of others? Can we image our God and offer comfort in a time of need? Can we reflect our Lord and offer protection in time of danger? Brothers and sisters, you even, we're even in this room together with people who are hurting and struggling. Perhaps it's just loneliness or perhaps there are some medical issues that just scare us. 
We have family members who are hurting. We need this. I encourage you. This is, a, this is how you're wired. God is, God's wired you from Genesis, the very beginning of it all, for relationships. Not for isolation. So check on one another this week. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Extend love and compassion to those who are struggling. We need one another in this life. That is perplexing. Grace allows us to see our neighbors and one another as not something to get ahead of or someone to get ahead of, but actually given to us by God. They're the ones that actually would bring us the good news about the Good Shepherd. Reminding us of Jesus. Even amidst all the strife and all the toil under the sun. For this reason, Jesus actually taught us to pray. Remember, he didn't say, uh, my father, give me or forgive me. He said, our father, when he taught us to pray. We should pray, our father, give us this day. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us. There's a togetherness. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, fell beneath the waves and was nearly swallowed up and lost forever were it not for the grace of his companion named Hopeful. Christian began to sink and crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All the waves go over me. Selah. And then said the other, be of good cheer. My brother, I feel the bottom and it is good. If you can live in this world in such a way that the people beside you, your friend, your spouse, your children, those are the ones that are on your minds, brothers, sisters, the people of God that he's placed us with. David Gibson said, if they are your waking concern, if those are the ones, those are your waking concern and your dominant focus, then you will find happiness. If your head hits the pillow at night full of questions about how you might help and, and serve someone else and how you can be a certain kind of person for them, then you will find the gladness and contentment that nothing else can match. So this isn't a rah-rah sermon to tell you to just go out and do it now. Because the reality is we can't do it on our own, can we? We can't do this on our own effort. We need Christ in us, the hope of glory. We need His Spirit to be in us, to actually give us the, the, the function, the, the unction of the, the, the Father, of what they want, of their desires, their, their knee-jerk, the knee-jerk reaction of Jesus. What we, would, we want to be like Christ, and we need His Spirit in us to work in those ways. And I believe that when we do this, when we live a life that's we, not me, we are reflecting our Creator. Remember Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their Maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. It honors God because it's behavior like God. It's behavior. It's like what Jesus would do and what Jesus did. This is a follow-up to the show Survivor. I didn't 
I don't watch the show. I watched the first couple seasons, I think, when it came out. It came out in the year 2000. It's like 42 seasons. But if I remember it correctly, I remember it this way. That, and I suppose today there are still moments on the show where the audience is actually moved to tears. Not because someone was really good at destroying the competition in some sort of game, but because of someone's self-sacrifice. It's just a breath of fresh air. Why is it a breath of fresh air when we see someone putting others ahead of themselves? Because we are hardwired to long for redemption and we sense that the sacrificing of someone's welfare for the good of another is somehow the highest virtue. It's Christ-like. So I believe all of these realities in life are meant to give us pause. We're supposed to pause and look at the dark world that we... We find ourselves in. But these questions, they're actually the questions that we might have are a gift from God to seek him out. Even the questions that the cold realities of this dark world give us are given to us by God. So if we're never asking the questions, would we ever know to look for the answer? Is it possible that life just, it's just not going to make sense? Many times. It's just not going to make sense. So we ask the questions. We look for answers that can only be found in God. So we see impotence against oppression. So we should ask, why would injustice prevail? We're not shaken by it because we know and we look to the God who is just. And at the giving of his son as a sacrifice for sinners, we were able to witness the ultimate act of oppression, yet the greater act of justice and mercy. And when we see the vanity of selfish toil, we should ask ourselves, why are we striving to keep up? Why are we striving to look better? That's a, that's a question that God has gifted you. And we must look to the God who is self-sacrificing. When we see the unhappiness of the unhappy business of selfish ambition, we should ask the obvious question, why would we go through life alone? Why would I possibly decide to just go in isolation? We must look to the God who is near. And He is the one, the psalmist says, has placed us, placed the lonely in families. He's provided community for us. Look to the God who alone is sufficient and will satisfy. You want to know how to find satisfaction in all of your labor? Then spend your work and your life on behalf of others, just as our Lord did. Why would you go it alone? Look to the God who draws near. The God who by his spirit gives us brothers and sisters. And when you watch how fame is fleeting and it hits you, you should ask the question, why would I desire something that is so fleeting and feeble? Desire something that will never change, that's immutable, that is solid, that's a rock, an anchor for the soul and will never pass away. The Lord, your God. The call in Ecclesiastes 4 is to combat the darkness of the world with community. To do it together, not alone. We, not me. How are we doing? Truly loving one's neighbor rather than being just simply kind or polite, it's always a challenge. Yet it's a challenge that is set before us in Ecclesiastes 4. 
as we pursue a life of contentment in community in which we do not eat, drink, and enjoy selfishly, but open-heartedly. Life is about gift, not gain. Everything that you and I have in this life, we do not deserve. We've learned in Ecclesiastes, it's on loan for a short time. Like A.W. Tozier said, life is but a short and fevered dress rehearsal for a play that we cannot stay to give. So let's navigate through this dark world together, trusting that God by His Spirit will put in us the desires to put others ahead of ourselves as we walk in community. Let's pray together. God, we praise You for Your Word. I thank You that Christ humbled Himself taking the very form of a servant. Though He was God, He took on the very form of a servant. He humbled Himself even to the point of death so that we would all confess, acknowledge that Christ is Lord. And Father, would You by Your Spirit make us more and more like Christ Would you strip away any desire we have of neglecting the community that you've put us in? Give us a stronger love for one another as a church family. Give us a stronger love for our neighbors, for our co-workers. Even now, God, would you give us a love for those who are going to come during families count? Would you already create a special love between us and everyone who would come? So that we can care for them. Lord, you are a good God. And you're wonderful. You've been so gracious to us. So I pray, Lord, that you would continue to be gracious to us in bringing this passage, this chapter to our minds this week. And it would reverberate. God, would you make us more like you through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.